This is Safe Space, episode four. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> As always with me, Robert and... Davide. So, I hope you have enjoyed our previous episodes. We're both uh, back in France now in the same room. Yes, I can actually see Davide. Mm. Um, we have not received any feedback on the previous show. We're not even completely sure if anybody heard it. <laughs> um, or we, are have, you? we have some evidence that people did hear it. Oh, that's good. But for all those quiet listeners out there, you can leave us feedback on Twitter, Safe Space 2012. And actually, our show is also now available on iTunes. If you go to the iTunes podcasts mm. section and you search for safe space, you're going to find us. Wow. Yeah, pretty cool. So even if idiots like us can put up a podcast. This is real democracy, isn't it? Yeah, truly democracy. Everybody can talk. Nobody has to listen. Okay, so I think the remaining audience, we're definitely going to lose after today, after our today's topic. So mm. let's see how we do. What do you want to talk about? Well, I got inspired. I listened to a podcast. I listened to a few podcasts and I listened to one which is called Hypercritical, which is about a guy who is quite critical. I think <laughs> that's fair to say. And he definitely finds faults in things. Without, I mean, he still appreciates them, but he's very good at pointing out faults and explaining in excruciating detail why something could have been done much better than mm. the way it was done. It's mostly a Computer Geeks podcast, so if you're not interested in computers, maybe don't go there. But if you are interested in computers, give it a try. It's 5 by 5 that's number 5, 5 by 5tv slash hypercritical. That's quite, I'm not a complete <clears throat> geek, although I do like Apple products. Uh, but it's quite, the guy is entertaining. Yeah, he's definitely entertaining. He's Italian descendant from Long Island. Oh, it's the best. They're the <clears> best ones. Yeah. So you just basically put into a Scorsese movie on some mafia. That's how <laughs> it feels when you listen to him. <clears throat> so anyway, this guy, he did a podcast on his experience with Wikipedia. Mm. Now, as we all know, Wikipedia is this endeavor on the net to collect all things knowable, more or less. Mm. Isn't it? Kind of. And one of his complaints, well, he complains, so of course, but when he only talks about Wikipedia, he complains. And he had some personal experiences. But basically, his complaint is that the way Wikipedia decides what is truth, the way Wikipedia decides if something is actually true or not, that was his main complaint. Or whether they're even trying to do that. Well, they are trying to do it. They actually have tried really hard to kind of become established as a trustworthy mm. source for research. Of course, all the universities and high school professors absolutely hate them. But whenever I want to know something, I go to, to uh, Wikipedia. Um, if you ever go to the, to the page on Bhutan, you're going to know that the date of the Losa is completely wrong. But normally it's pretty accurate. <clears throat> That is true. Every time I've been trying to look at things that I know something about, 
I almost always found mistake. Yeah. Almost always. So what's interesting is that Wikipedia, what do they de define as something that can be held as true? And there's an excerpt actually on Wikipedia. And they say, verifiability and not truth is one of the fundamental requirements for inclusion in Wikipedia. Mm. Truth of itself is not a substitute for meeting the ver verifiability requirement. And now comes the interesting question, which is, I think, is sentence which is really to the point. No matter how convinced you are that something is true, do not add it to an article unless it's verifiable. So this is where it goes a little bit to the crux of what we want to talk about, that often we are convinced that something is true. Mm. And Wikipedia's decision is kind of, we don't really care if you're convinced if it's true or not. We're only going to include it if it's verifiable. And verifiable for them means basically it has already been printed or published in an established medium. So mm. most of them would be, ideally, it would be some research research paper in a research, in a kind of scientific research journal or at least an established publication like the New York Times. Mm. And in recent times, they have also allowed more kind of web publications to serve as mm. as a secondary source. So basically, they have Wikipedia, they say, via a tertiary source. So you have the primary source is somebody who has actually witnessed things themselves. The secondary source is somebody who writes about it. So you need to have somebody who wrote about something else. And then only Wikipedia would refer to that article and say, because somebody else published that and said, this is how it happened, we can include it in what we consider as truth. Mm. But I guess you just want to use that as a, a starting point for a different type of discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, I'm more interested in a more inherent definition of truth or establishing reality. <clears throat> I mean, I'm, I found... It was the kind of starting point for me because I hadn't thought about it for a while. And then I heard this Wikipedia thing and I was like, that's really interesting. And then actually the, the interesting part is in the follow-up episode of this podcast, which is 53, actually, they talk about other kind of ways of establishing truth in our Western societies. So one of them is obviously truth established in a court of law. Mm. which is not based on previous publications, obviously. It's not based, based on newspaper articles, but it's basically based on witnesses. Mm. And of course, physical objects, kind of yeah. evidence, evidence. <clears throat> and again, I mean, yes, there's basically a testimony by a human person who says this is what happened. And it's a decision of the court, which testimonies are deemed to be true or kind of close to the truth and which one are obviously false. I mean, that's what the jury does. They get contradictory testimonies and they have to say, well, this person actually trusts to tell us what actually happened and this person obviously not. So, 
So that's a very different way of establishing truth or what has happened. Now, I I have a background in mathematics and physics. So if you study physics, you inevitably come across how the scientific community, or at least the scientific community in terms of physics and other precise sciences defines truths or established results. <clears throat> so one thing, obviously, what happens in the scientific community is there is also this concept of verifiability. That if you have an experiment and you say, this is my result, well, that's all nice, but unless some other group of researchers in another place can reproduce your results, your results are not really trusted. So you need to have a verifiable experiment in terms of trusting results out of experiments. <clears throat> and well, if you have followed the news recently, there was this scientific debacle about the neutrinos traveling faster than light. <clears throat> you haven't heard about this? Yes, but I didn't know it was a debacle. Well, it happened in Italy. Mm. So, of course, it was a debacle. <laughs> <clears throat> no, they basically measured how fast neutrinos would travel. <coughs> so they sent off they start they sent off some neutrinos in Geneva and measured them after they have gone through the Mont Blanc massif on the other side in Torino and they kind of calculated what's the distance and how long did the neutrinos take to travel mm. and they found out well they travel faster than light, which according to relativity theory is not really Possible. A possibility. And of course, the scientific community was was really excited because news is news. And But then they redid the measurements and they checked it up and then they found there was a loose cable somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, there was a loose cable and there was a problem with the measurement method. So one of the things could have cancelled out the other one, but in the end they concluded that no, neutrinos were not actually mm. travelling faster than light between Geneva and Torino. Did they try again? I think they tried again. I'm not sure. I didn't follow it up completely, but mm. so that would be verifiability in a scientific environment. <clears throat> mm. And I have a question there. Yeah. But it's uh it's gonna be just a short thing. Isn't speed relative to something else? I mean, you can't move at the speed if you don't have something else to relate your speed to. Like a plane has, you know, when you go on a plane, there are always two speeds relative to the, to the air, which takes in account the wind. So you might have a, you might, yeah, you have, to the ground. of course you have relative speed. So if you have two beams of light, one going against each other, isn't the relative speed of one beam of light compared to the other one, double the speed no. of light. <clears throat> because the way you add up velocities in the special relativity theory is not, if you just have two velocities, you can't just add them up and say, this one travels at 100 kilometers per hour, the other one, rel the other one relative to the first one travels at 200 kilometers per hour. So the second one in total would travel 300 kilometers per <laughs> hour. does not work. There's a different formula how you add okay. speeds. So, and there's some kind of square root and some squares involved. So in the end, whatever you do in terms of adding up or kind of measuring speed relative to something else, 
the speed of light is always preserved. Mm. And if you exceed the speed of light in one system, you would exceed in all the systems. So that's not gonna, unfortunately. All right. So I thought I was clever, more yeah, clever was than Einstein. Clever, what? clever one, but <laughs> it I might th- might work after you had a couple of glasses of wine in Torino. Very you, might be, you might be able to convince somebody else that this is how it all worked out, but no, unfortunately not. All right. Okay. <clears throat> so what are the philosophical implications on all of that, which I guess is where yeah. you want to go with this? Well, we, yeah, we're kind of slowly, we're going from the really coarse kind of Wikipedia style of truth to the scientific style of truth, mm. which I have been studying for decades. So I think it's a little bit more refined. <clears throat> To the more philosophical aspects, and actually physics and philosophy become very close at that point. And well, what most physicists probably know is there is a, incidentally, actually, I think he's Austrian. There is an Austrian philosopher or physicist called Karl Popper, who stated, and that's what seems to happen in philosophy all the time, that once you explain your theory, it's obvious that this is how it is. Mm. I mean, I find it a lot when I look at philosophies and if you actually get to the point, it's a very simple idea behind it. Mm. Yes. Um, which is often clouded in all kinds of mysterious terms and historic references and... <clears throat> obscure and so language. On, obscure language. It's worse than the legal profession, I think. Mm. So... And I mean, we talked a little bit, David and I, before this podcast. And the interesting thing is, I think, really, that philosophy does not really have a stronghold in our culture. I mean, everybody uses psychology, you know. Everybody, everybody calls about, uh, talks about being control freak or kind of emotional blackmail, all kind of mm. psychological terms you use all the time, freely, no problem. Mm. Psychological terms. Philosophical terms. Philosophical terms. I mean, how many people talk about being an existentialist? Mm. I wouldn't even know exactly what that means. Well, you need a scarf to be an existentialist. That's the difficult part. French, no? That's right. You need a black (laughs) scarf, be a French, and you speak with a French accent. So, yeah, it was... I don't know what that even means. Exactly. And I have... Whenever I read something about philosophy, Mm. I just get... It's like there's so many words and you don't really get to the point mm. of what they actually mean. So I never got interested in it But mm. as a scientist, there's a few things you have to know. So one of them is Popper's, which, and he talks not about verifiable, but actually falsifiable. Mm. And the concept is really, actually, once you, somebody mentions this, it's really obvious if you kind of declare that you have a new theory about nature, like the relativity theory, or you basically put down some laws and say, this is how things are. And if you think about it, there's no way you can, there's an infinite possibility of circumstances Mm. that you would have to verify if your theory actually matches reality. Mm. I mean, for example, adding, I mean, 
adding velocity. Mm. What if you have if what if you travel in a car That's and right. you're shooting a gun from the traveling car? <laughs> kind of what is the the resultant speed of the bullet? <clears throat> Now, there's an infinite number of circumstances that you would have to test out to see if your theory is really true. Mm. I mean, does it happen if it's 30 degrees? Does it happen when it's 25 degrees? All of these things, you know, mm. does it happen on Earth? Does it happen in the air? Does it happen in space? Mm. There's no way you could really actually check every possibility. There's just infinite number of possibilities where your theory applies. But that's why you have a theory. That's the whole point, yeah. <laughs> you don't want to kind of specify, if David yeah. drives in a car and shoots a Magnum 55 in the direction north, then the speed of that bullet will be the addition of the speed of the car together with the speed of the bullet and mm. so on. That's not interesting. You want to have two velocities add in the following way. Bang. Mm. So what Popper said is... <clears throat> The whole point about a scientific theory does is it's not verifiable, but it can be falsified. If you find one example where it doesn't work, then obviously it's oh, yeah. not right. That is uh, what uh, was used in debate in India and then after that in Tibet. Uh, well, one of the elements when you do philosophical debate, which is a very interesting um, technique of uh trying to find out reality together. You know, a debate always involves two people. They have different views. Uh, one has actually a specific view. The other try to see if, if it works. Uh, meanwhile, in all Tibetan Buddhist university, you learn how to do that. It's very, there's a specific technique, a specific language to it. Um, uh, but it has been developed by the logicians of old India, you know, so it's at least uh, you know, a couple of thousand years old, this thing. Uh, or 1,500 at least. And um, the interesting thing is that you always need to bring an, an example. Like you you have, um, you state your, your thing, say, you know, there's a certain language you say, you know, the car is red uh, because uh, it has four wheels. And then you always have to add, uh, like in the example of Robert's car, which in this case is, is the wrong example because actually the example applies because you do have a red car. <laughs> I can't come with, <laughs> with an example. We need to edit this out. While David is trying to find an example, we actually put up a few links of these things we're talking about <clears throat> on our web page, which is www.tumblr.com slash... No, actually, sorry. It's safespace2012.tumblr.com. So I've put up the link to Popper and Wikipedia and all of these things. If you're really kind of desperate to find out more about philosophy, <clears throat> it's all there. At least there's enough there to confuse you. So a typical example, we, you know, you know, if you talk about uh, microphones, to accept that, you know, I would say microphones are perishable, right? They can be broken. They're not permanent. Uh, like in the example of the microphone I just broke yesterday. Great. That's an example that works. So if I were to find an example of one microphone in the universe that cannot be destroyed, then uh, that would be the example of falsifiability. <clears throat> well, actually, the point that Popper makes is when you state a theory, yeah. like you say, yeah, all microphones can be broken. Mm. That actually has implied... <clears throat> 
that you can check it out. That's you right. have a way to verify it. It basically take a microphone, see if you can break it. That's right. That would be the falsifiability test. So there's a test built in. You want to check out this theory. <clears throat> you take out the microphone, you break it and see if it breaks. Mm. And you can do it as many times as you want. And it <clears throat> always breaks. Or you always find a way to break well, it. Well, yeah, Popper's conclusion is a theory is valid only as long as nobody has kind of found a microphone which doesn't break. Okay. <clears throat> Once you find a microphone which doesn't break, mm. you, the theory is obviously wrong because you That's said right. all microphones can break. Well, here's one which doesn't break. Mm. Which is like what many, many uh, <laughs> philosophical books in the, in the tradition of Indo-Tibetan mm. philosophy actually are built up, you know. They talk about things and, you know, Buddhists always say, you know, you, you won't be able to find anything that is not, uh, you know, impermanent, that can be broken, taken yeah. apart, subdiv subdivided, whatever you want. Uh, and then, you know, you go, they go through a list of uh, possible things, uh, often answering some other philosophies of that time positions, stating the existence of God, stating the existence of, uh, of, of the soul, you know, but down to, you know, uh, of course they get very quickly through material objects, but then they go into like more metaphysical objects and, yeah. and that, that gets really, really interesting because, you know, at any time in history, there has been theories of metaphysical entities that do not have the qualities of physical objects being like, you know, perishable, changing all the time. And the interesting thing is that uh, at the end of the day, uh, the Buddha Dharma, you know, this, the teaching, the Buddhist teaching, they don't say that. They don't actually, uh, you could say, you know, that they don't actually state the existence of anything that is, does not change, perish, or can be changed in, in or influenced in any way whatsoever. Um, that's the whole basis. Yeah, well, of that's a little bit vague for me. <clears throat> mm -hmm. That's the way you've expressed it so far. And that that was another thought I had when I was thinking about this whole true thing in Wikipedia mm -hmm. and so on. Western philosophy tends to not really get down to the point, you know. I mean, there's this, <clears throat> I looked this up, there's an excerpt of a book of Feynman. Feynman was this Nobel Prize, Nobel Prize winner in physics. Mm. He was in quantum theory and he wrote a book called surely you're choking Mr. Feynman, which is kind of, kind of, yeah, he's recounting incidents in his life. It's pretty funny. And he's going to this one philosophy lecture and they were talking about this concept of an essential object, which I have no clue what it is. That's not relevant to the point. Mm. And Feynman was really down to earth. So he kind of said, well, if I give you a brick, you know, a brick that you use to build a house. Is that an essential object or not? Mm. And the philosophers, they all kind of started discussing, is it, is it not? Or is it the brickness, the nature of brick that mm. is this? And so on. It ended up in complete chaos. And he basically concludes, which I think it's a fair conclusion to say, if they cannot even decide if a brick is an essential object, then you can put in any philosophical term at this point. Yeah. If you cannot say the brick is this or it's not, then your whole theory is pretty weak and really does not apply 
to anything, you know. I mean, a brick is the most standard object you could imagine. So yeah, if so you cannot that, say anything about a brick, how are you, you going to say about something about an atom or time <laughs> or an electron? Something yeah. which is much more difficult to grasp than a brick. That's where this Majamika philosophy from India, you know, from Buddhist India, just goes down to the point, say, there is no theory that holds water. There is no, you can have a number of theories that helps you do things. You know, there must be a number of uh, even physical theories that help helps you build up an airplane, do th- st- helpful stuff. But in terms of um, actually knowing how re- reality is, uh, not, no amount of theory will ever match uh, reality. Basically, uh, yeah, even at the level of the brick, they do exactly, they actually make it a strong point of their philosophy to say, no, they, they, we don't, we don't have a theory about the brick. You will never come up with a theory about the brick that we cannot take apart. <clears throat> and they were, really good at taking theories apart and very annoying. Which, of course, Popper would absolutely hate because there is no way that you can falsify the theory. Because they don't have one. That's what exactly. they say all the they time. Don't we don't have, have a theory, yeah. so you can't do anything with, with that. Yeah. And But something more applicable to our situation. Okay. Okay, now, so we have now dealt with and the philosophers among our audience they will probably think that we have really done a bad job on talking about Western philosophy, which we probably have. And uh, and also of Eastern philosophy, by the way. Yeah, we haven't talked about Eastern philosophy. A little bit. We tried. (laughs) So, but, I mean, what's in it for us, you know, kind of daily life? Mm -hmm. What do we take? I mean, basically now going to the Buddhist definition of truth and how is that? applicable yeah. to life. By the way, I just want to make a point that I don't even know where Robert is going with that. I'm really kind of... <laughs> well, neither do I, so... Let's see. We are here in tandem, kind of. Yeah, but I'm, I'm waiting <clears throat> for the kind of... What's the part? Well, what I always found amazing in the Buddhist teachings, and again, it's a very simple idea, mm. is to realize that just because we give something a name, that doesn't mean that this thing actually exists in some inherent way. Mm. And of course, Buddhist philosophers have come up with numerous way of kind of defining what it means to exist inherently, isn't it? Mm. That's a, I guess it's a solved problem. <clears throat> but what that means is, and my favorite example is a river. So we're basically not talking about if somebody swam and was swimming in the river or not. We're not talking about that kind of truth at the point. Mm-hmm. We are actually debating if there is even something that we can call a river. Mm. I think that's where Buddhist philosophy goes, isn't it? Yeah. <clears throat> well, they do it because so many of our thought actions and stuff are based on uh on ideas like rivers and, yeah. and, you know, nations. War are started and done because of the idea of nations. Uh, all kind of, you know, all kind of uh, both positive and negative actions <clears throat> are done based on that. So it's worth, I, you know, I think, on first of all, on a very simple level, it's, it's very helpful to verify those uh, nomenclatures, you know, yeah. those and, and see whether... They are as solid as they seem, and whether it's worth to um, kill people, for example, yeah. to 
for an entity that hasn't been even proven to exist. Yeah, I mean, as, as, as David has said before, you know, yes, if I say, here's a river, hmm. everybody totally understands what I mean. That's right. And there's nothing wrong with that. Actually. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. But, and that's the Buddhist philosophers have this great saying, it's only true as long as it's not properly examined. Yeah. What's the exact quote? Yeah, something like that. You yeah. know, it's only satisfy. It only sat, it only satisfies your is is um, uh, as long as you don't look too closely, it's fine. Basically, yeah. it, it's going to work. <clears throat> That's one of the conclusion that one of the uh, ancient philosophers in the in the Buddhist tradition came because uh, you know the Buddha himself already came up with the idea of the two truths because at some point. Uh, to make it easier for, for people to understand, you need to define whether you're talking about, okay, no, well, look, I'm trying to get on the other side of this river because my wife is pregnant. So I'm not interested in your discussion on whether the exactly. thing exists. I just need to get across. I need to get across, <clears throat> so give me a boat and shut up. Yeah. So that's what we call the relative truth. Then you have the absolute truth because... In, in this case, you want to talk about the actual existence of the river. You're not interested <clears> at that particular yeah. juncture. And we're going to come later to why this is relevant to even talk about. There you go. <clears throat> I have at least one point. Ah, that's interesting. There. So, well, let's have a look at the river. Okay. <clears throat> so, let's examine it a little bit more closely. Do we even know where the river starts? I mean, it's the bank of the river, part of the river. Why you would say these are the river banks? So normally you say, well, in the language, they sound like they're part of the river. They um, would be part of the river, isn't it? And the kind of grass, which is growing halfway in the river. Hmm. This is grass. It's not yeah. the river. And what about the river bed? I mean, you cannot even exactly say where does the water end and the earth start. That's true. There's example. a part where it's all mixed up, right? There's a part where it's all mixed up. And then, of course, if you go actually into physics, then it becomes gets even worse because <laughs> then you have atoms and molecules and well, good luck to you by deciding where does the river start and where does it end. Hmm. And that's only one part. Then of course you can say, well, <clears throat> the water that I'm seeing right now from the river is not the same one as yesterday because after all the river is moving. So the yeah. water I'm looking at today well, the water I looked at yesterday, by now, is down somewhere in the Mediterranean. It's mm. not here anymore. Mm. And where does the river end and the air start? Mm. So you have all these kind of assumptions, which are kind of just, which are not considered. When you say it's a river, everybody has a picture in their mind. Mm. <clears throat> and it more or less applies. And you, we all know what we're talking about. But actually, when you look at it, there's nothing you can actually say what the river is precisely. Define it. Mm. And that's not even looking at atoms. That's just even, you could not even say which atoms are part of the river and which are not. <laughs> Isn't it? Mm. <clears throat> because you would refer to the river, including the river banks, in a certain mm. situation. Yeah. <clears throat> and there would be other situations where you only refer to the water in the river. And then there's this part of the delta or whatever is the end part of the river yeah. that kind of <clears throat> starts to merge with the sea. Yes. And where does the sea start? Exactly. And then what about the waves of the river? The waves is even worse because that's just the formation of the water 
That's right. <clears throat> which is doesn't stay the same. Mm. And the wave itself is a complete concept because it's not like you have wave particles. So, but now people are saying, <clears throat> great, you know, right, fine. That was easy to understand. Yeah. Now, what's the problem? Mm-hmm. Okay. We all understand this. <clears throat> this is really obvious. Yeah. Okay. You tell me river is constantly changing. Yes, we get this. You tell me what I say is a river is just a label for something and the definition of what it is exactly actually varies according to my circumstances and mm. the time and space and so on. Why is that relevant? <clears throat> and actually it's relevant because you can apply the same analysis to yourself. First of all, you can apply it to your body. Mm. You can apply it to your properties, to mm. your family, your friends. Mm. And so much of our emotional <clears throat> relationship yeah. to those things is that based. Is my, that yeah. is the point that yeah. you react emotionally as though these things exist. Mm. And that's really hard. I mean, that's the hard part to get that intellectually you completely understand this Buddhist philosophy. And actually there was this Scottish, I have to mention it because I have a friend who is Scottish and he always tells me that Hume <laughs> kind of already all. did the Buddhist philosophy. In already the, like 2000 years after the Buddhist. In the Scottish Enlightenment. <laughs> and he had these ideas, which is yeah. great. And again, it's an example where philosophy is really easy to understand. Yeah. But it doesn't really make it into our emotional understanding yeah. of reality. In no way whatsoever. Yeah. Which is a unique thing, uh, I think, historically. I, I had this discussion with a friend of mine who is also kind of a Buddhist. And he's, um, uh, he's, he's a, a physicist and used to work for the, for, what is the name, CNR or CRN, the, the French kind of research. CNRS. Yeah. And... Uh, he said that, you know, now he's studying Buddhism and stuff. And he said, like, it's actually, um, there are many things when you study Buddhist text that at that time needed to be explained and established. That now anybody with a, you know, a school education has already. Like, the Buddhist at the time of, like, you know, classic India or even Middle Ages Tibet... They first had to explain to people, you know, that there are no spirits in in the fire, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, our Western scientific, actually, interestingly, that yeah. science has much more changed our worldview than philosophy. It does, but not to the to the the one element that you just uh, talked about, because uh, a, a concept like impermanence and interdependence, which are fundamental in Buddhist philosophy, are. You learn them at school, even if they they they, they don't uh, explain them this way. But it's obvious when you study physics that there's you know there's no and you know and there's no energy newly created. It's all transformed, blah blah blah, and so on. And uh, there's nothing really there forever. The, even the universe, you know, uh, expands and then recontracts. Everything goes. You know, there's nothing there. You know, this kind of materialistic scientific worldview actually it's a very good starting point that didn't exist in the past. So, but now the step into what does it mean for me in everyday life? That is something that in this society we live in, in the Western society, hasn't been uh, particularly 
um, successful. I don't even try if anybody tried to do that. You know, well, it's also incredibly hard. Well, because even for I mean, also for Buddhists, I mean, it is super hard. Our Buddhists, I mean, all the Buddhists that I know, we still kind of relate to reality, yes, more or less the way like everybody else does. Absolutely, yeah. And yeah, maybe you have some glimpses while you practice, where it's like, oh. Yep. This is all a little bit less solid than mm. I always think it is. But it is so hard to change this. Now, because in the absence <clears throat> of a spiritual path that has some sort of aim at the end of it, if you go through the lane of uh, spiritual material, uh, sorry, uh, uh, scientific materialism, you end up with nihilism, which is very depressing. Yeah, I don't even know what that exactly means. Well, imagine that you would uh, agree on everything about nothing stays, there's nothing there, you know, even that, you know, what's the point of being emotionally attached to anything, and then you would stop there. Yeah, that's pretty depressing. Isn't it? That's what I'm talking about. You know, whereas uh, we like to entertain the possibility (laughs) that there's a way to know reality that is not uh, incomplete and and false. And we call that to be enlightened, and we imagine that to be a state of happiness. So, we're not depressed too much. Yeah, because there's hope. I think this is a, t- a thing for another one, maybe, but I think it's a very interesting theme. It's like, uh, do we have to choose between hope and the heart and uh, a cold, nihilistic uh, materialism? And I think the answer is no, but yeah, sometimes actually, it looks like. So, we actually managed to end up on a positive note. Are we already ending? Yeah, I think it's time. I'm just getting started. People always complain it's too long, so we're going to end here, and we can continue next time. All right. Look forward for part two. Yeah. And please let us know if there's... We actually really appreciate if you point out all our mistakes, and I'm sure we have made plenty this time. Then we can have follow-ups. We can have follow-ups and talk about it. So, Twitter us, Safe Space 2012 or Robert Rickbert, that's my personal one, or go to safespace2012.tumblr.com. You can follow us there. Yeah, get in touch with us. And we'll be back in two weeks. See you next time. Bye.